Well, good morning and welcome. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings 9 and 10 today, page 298 in our scriptures here. No one fully understands God, but our scriptures have given us great clarity that God is, on one hand, holy and just, while at the other time, perfectly loving and a God of grace. And we have to grapple with the reality that there is no contradiction between the holiness of God and the grace of God. In fact, they really do accent each other for a complete picture. They are the dual perfections of God. Uh, It's great to be able to focus on the grace of God many times. Today, our passage focuses on the holy justice of God, and then we will indeed understand better the grace of God. But in chapters 9 and 10 of 2 Kings in our study here, we meet a new character, a new man in the, in the story, Jehu, is, who is commissioned by God to kill the reigning king and wipe out all of his family. It is meant to be sobering. So verses 1 through 3, first of all, the prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak under your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room, private. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. This is going to get messy. The reason it's going to get messy is because Israel already has a king and he's not retiring or resigning. Verse 4. So the young man, the prophet, if you recall, Elisha had been teaching and training prophets in many of the previous chapters we've studied. The young man, the prophet who's assigned this task, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army of officers sitting together. The army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which one of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. That was his dad, wicked Ahab. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, Joram's mom. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. They didn't fare well in history. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. 
That's the end of the message from Elisha and from God. Then he opened the door and ran. It's very clear that God himself initiates the bloodshed that we read about here. Elisha, the senior prophet, has assigned this task of telling uh, Jehu his new future uh, to go and tell him that one of the younger prophets would, would do that. Jehu is about to replace uh, the existing king, Joram. To get into the context a little bit of 2 Kings, uh, maybe you're just joining us or we forget things week to week, let's look at the map a little bit of uh, where exactly this is. If we can get that slide, there we go. There we go. Um, so the, the line there divides the two sections that Israel now exists, north and south. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the existing king is Joram, the son of Ahab, actually Ahab and Jezebel. To the south is the nation of Judah. It is currently uh, reigning over it is King Ahaziah, nephew of Joram. This is interesting, and grandson of Ahab. So there had been the intermarriage we've talked about in some previous weeks. And so now there are descendants of Ahab in the throne rooms of both of these nations. The prevailing political issue is that they are at war with Aram, which is kind of a perennial enemy north of Israel. And the existing alliance is that these two nations are not enemies now, the two halves of Israel, Israel and Judah. They are actually allies because you've got uncle and nephew on those thrones. Uh, but the, the spiritual problem is rooted in Ahab, the ancestor, at this moment probably has, had died about 10 years previously in battle. So this young prophet, sorry, this young prophet comes back and, uh, and uh, tells them, gives this message, and he says this is for the commander. Jehu is the commander in charge. He's very likely the commander in charge of the whole army. He's like the, he's the top guy in, J, in Joram's army. And he's served there for a while because we find later on that he also served under Ahab, his dad, verse 25 tells us. So he's risen through the ranks. And at this point, he was not plotting to overthrow his master. But now this prophet has come and said, you're supposed to. This is what the Lord says. No question, God is doing this. Destroy, verse 7, you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. And I'll avenge the blood of the servants. Because both Jezebel and Ahab had been killing prophets. Uh, we saw this uh, last week. We referenced 1 Kings 18 where Ahab's wife Jezebel, who is still living, her husband Ahab is dead, but she's still living. She was literally finding and executing every prophet of God that she could find. She was not just an idolater herself. She was trying to wipe out those who worshipped the true God. So with this flask, he pours the oil and says, I anoint you king. I can only imagine Jehu's mind just whirling Really? Should I, should I stage a coup? Just because a young prophet comes and tells me this? Do I believe this? And while we leave Jehu with his thoughts, I guess it'd be good for us to kind of think through some of our own. We will, we will not be able to grapple with the realities 
of bloodshed in this passage unless we grapple with the reality of just how holy God is and what that means. It is forcing us to think about the seriousness of all sin. Sure, we're on the, we're on the extreme edge of the spectrum of sin when we're talking about Ahab and Jezebel and their descendants. But sin is this serious? From our chairs, sometimes we, we see ourselves as being, yeah, pretty good. And the sin issues are not that bad. Not as bad as these, right? But we can't help but see the seriousness of sin when we see what God is about to do. Or verse 10, Jezebel. <laughs> no funeral for her. Dogs are going to eat her up. No glory, all shame at her death. It might, it might surprise us when we see God's word describing uh, the violent kinds of death, the grisly kind of details, but we can be sure as we read scripture that God did not inspire these details for us to read to be somehow gratuitous about it or, or just haphazardly tossing these things out. He is meaning to get our attention about the seriousness of sin. No one ignores the holiness of God indefinitely. No, God does not ignore it indefinitely. Watch a life that is ignoring the holiness of God flippantly, brazenly. At some point, you begin to see the consequences of that sin. And, and if, in some cases, you don't see it on earth, we can be sure of the justice of God forever. It is sobering. And it tells us that if we are living in some way in defiance of the holiness of God... God is not ignoring us if we are ignoring him. Verse 11, when Jehu went out to his fellow officers, so, you know, we've got the anointing, he's heard of the, the private uh, information. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked, is everything all right? Why did this, this madman come to you? <laughs> Jehu kind of puts them off. You know the man and the sort of things he says. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. Is all well? And at first, Jehu wants to kind of uh, ignore it. He's, he's still trying to process, am I really going to do this? But they're saying, this is weird. This, this young guy comes and uh, has this private conversation. You've got a weird look on your face. Probably has some oil running down his shoulders or something. Something happened, and he says, no, you know the kind of... These guys are crazy, these prophet people. And some have thought that maybe uh, Jehu was thinking, I, did my fellow officers put him up to this? Is this some kind of a trick? Hey, you're king, and then I'm on to you. No, they said, this is, it's not us. Surprising to Jehu, I think, his fellow officers in unison say, yes, you are the new king. This is a God thing, first of all, but don't you suppose that uh, everyone in the army ranks was just about ready for regime change? 
If you've lived under the rule of, of Ahab and Jezebel, and now Joram, their son, is just as bad, evil and corruption in the palace, insiders are happy to be rid of the leader. Kind of sounds like some of the news out of Russia, maybe now. Jehu is king! Well, that launches the first big target of the coup, and that would be the reigning king, Joram, Ahab's son, every bit his father's son, verse 14. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Aram, but King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Haziel, king of Aram. He was, he was off the battlefront because he'd been wounded already. Jehu said, if this is the way you, talking now to his fellow officers, if this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the, news, out of the city to go tell the news in Jezreel. And then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, the southern, right? Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. They were, they were, they were allies. So just to get a little bit of an update on our map. So here's the northern kingdom. They're fighting Aram. And this area is where the whole rest of this passage, these two chapters, take place. So we're going to zoom in on that. And so Ramoth Gilead is where Jehu is anointed king. This says by Elisha. It's actually by the guy Elisha sent. But he is anointed king there, which is more on the battlefront. That's where you'd expect the commander to be. But Jezreel is where uh, King Joram is actually recovering from his wounds. And now who's joined him? But Ahaziah, the king of Judah, to the south. So just a little bit of a view of where we are at geographically. Don't let anyone out of the city of Ramoth, Gilead, to go tip off Joram, who's recovering in Jezreel. Jezreel. If you were here last week, does Jezreel maybe ring a bell? Jezreel is where Ahab and Jezebel, Joram's parents, had their second palace. That's where Ahab looked over and said, I want that vineyard, belonged to Naboth. Ahab and Jezebel conspired together, falsely accusing Naboth, a godly, innocent man, and having him stoned to death so they can seize the property. Jezreel, keep that in mind. It's a big part of this story. Verse 17, when the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's tropes approaching, he called out and said, I see some troops coming. So uh, get a horseman, Joram says. Just a little summary. He says, go, go. He had good security measures. He's the king. You're going to see if someone is, is coming towards you. Send a messenger. Well, the messenger comes to Jehu, and Jehu says, just follow me. And he does. They send out another messenger, and the messenger comes to, to Jehu, and Jehu says, you just follow me also. And so now they keep riding towards Jezreel, verse 20. The lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Some of you don't realize it, but your driving is biblical. In a bad way. Now Joram's getting concerned. Verse 21. 
Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him, where? At the plot of ground that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Surprise, surprise, irony. They are meeting Jehu right where mommy and daddy for one, grandpa and grandma for the other, had killed Naboth. Under God's old covenant law, there was this law of retribution, Exodus 21-24, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was in full force, and we will see it come to pass for these two kings, both descendants of Ahab and Jezebel. Verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he, he asked... Have you come in peace, Jehu? I mean, you're my army commander. How can there be peace? Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Joram dies right there on Naboth's land. The reason is spiritual judgment because of the idolatry, the, the um, as we saw last week, the occultic sin connection when there is idolatry that must be purged, and that's not to mention the mass murder of prophets by Jezebel and Ahab. Verse 25. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father? This goes back 20 years. When the Lord made this prophecy about him, here's the prophecy from God. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now Jehu says... Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. Jehu points out that Elijah had this prophecy earlier, and actually we, we know about that prophecy from 1 Kings 21, but we now know more about it because this is a more complete version of the prophecy, and somehow Elijah had already told this to Jehu. So Jehu, for 20 years, has had this thing kind of in the back of his mind, is this really going to happen? And it did. And God says, I saw what happened to Naboth. And God did not ignore it. I hope that's reassuring. Because we wonder many times why God isn't making things right or doing it sooner. A little bit later, we're going to actually get a clue about why he waited so long. But God does not stop every criminal's bullet. He does not make sure that every uh, criminal or offender is caught and prosecuted. And so in our inability to understand fully the sovereignty of God and what he does and does not do and the timing, it is important that we understand that God saw it all. He doesn't miss a thing. Persecuted Christians, God sees. 
abused spouse, child, parents, God sees. Cheated financial victims, God sees. The suffering of aborted babies, eternal souls, God sees. As well as seeing the mother's hard circumstances. So Naboth, while he suffered unjustly and died, was seen by God. And God is holy, and he will not be ignored when his morals and when his commands and principles are ignored. God does not always exact his vengeance on earth, like we will read about today. But we can be sure from these glimpses of when he does that he is a God of holiness and justice, and there is full eventual justice. It is now Ahaziah's turn to die for his sins and his family sins. Uh, verse 27, Now when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! And they wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblim. But he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem. And remember, he's the king of, king of Judah, and buried him in, with his fathers in the tomb in the city of David in the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. So just to follow a little bit, again, geographically, we were in Jezreel, where Joram dies. So Ahaziah says, I'm running for my life. He goes down to these areas. He escapes, but he does not survive. He dies in Megiddo. And just to kind of give you a preview of the next couple places that the story takes us, uh, we'll be back to Jezreel, where Jezebel next meets her end, and eventually the rest of it takes place in the capital city of Samaria, where um, was the main palace and uh, courts of the nation. Ahaziah... Uh, ruled the kingdom of Judah as a descendant of David. You've got to keep that in mind that, that Ahaziah is actually a direct descendant of David. On, on the Judah side of things, there is a continuous line from David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so forth. It is never interrupted. In fact, it continues, that bloodline continues until who? That we studied at Christmas, Jesus Christ because that was the promise of God. And actually, this is a little bit of a clue to something we're going to study next week in chapter 11. But on the Israel side, the ten tribes that had rebelled and left, there is a constant changeover of, of regime and, and uh, uh, dynasties. So they, anyhow, that explains why they take him to bury him in Jerusalem. He's still part of David's line, even though an evil uh, chapter of that story. Uh, the next event now is some of what we referred to last week as we summarized the story, or we, we looked at the more entire story, rather, of, of Jezebel. This is where she meets her end, in Jezreel, the northern palace. Then Jehu went to Jezreel, and when Jezebel heard about it, and she knows what's coming, she painted her eyes and arranged her hair, and looked out of a window 
As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs, male attendants, looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Sorry for the PG-13 story. She paints up. She, she puts her makeup on. She fixes her hair like, an, like a Phoenician queen, most likely, because that's where she was from. And she wanted to die nobly, die in glory. She had left Phoenicia to go marry Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and brought with her, importing, infecting Israel with Baal worship. She sees Jehu, knowing what's happening, and she tries to insult him by calling him Zimri. Uh, Zimri was a previous uh, king of Israel who had done what it seemed to Jezebel that Jehu was doing. He had uh, staged a coup and killed the previous king. And Zimri was noted for the fact that he had the shortest rule of any king of Israel, seven days, when somebody turned around and killed him. So that was her attempt, but this was not that. This was not the same. That coup was Zimri's idea. This one was God's idea. And Zimri's reign lasted seven days, and Jehu's, who we'll see later, lasted 28 years. So, Jezebel, you're wrong on all counts. Jehu is not Zimri. You're not a Phoenician queen. And you're not dying in glory, but in hideous shame. Well, verses 34 through 37 kind of complete the story. Jehu takes a break for lunch. And when he comes back to bury Jezebel, there is no Jezebel. Because, indeed, the dogs had eaten her completely, and all these prophecies had been fulfilled. The stories are awful. Almost need an intermission, but I don't know if you'd come back, so we'll continue, and I want to summarize a little bit the next story equally as difficult. It begins, verse 1 of chapter 10, that there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab, 70 sons, obviously, Ahab had many more women in his life besides Jezebel. So these are like brothers, stepbrothers, half-brothers rather, of, uh, of uh, Joram, who has already died. Jehu writes a letter to the elders and officials, kind of the administrators who are in charge of the palace and who are charged with providing and protecting King Ahab's other children, sons. And in this letter, Joram, Jehu says, I dare you to put someone on the throne who's a son of Joram, who would be next in line, or a son of Ahab. I dare you to put someone on the throne, and then we're going we're gonna to fight it out. And those officials reply, verse 4, but they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? And they basically say in verse 5, you know, we'll do anything that you say. So Jehu writes him a second letter, and the second letter has this demand, brace yourself, behead all of Ahab's sons and bring the gory evidence, the proof, in baskets to Jezreel. 
And that's what they did. And when they arrive with all of that, Jehu speaks to the crowd and says, well, you guys did this, not me. (laughs) But it was his way of saying, I now have your loyalty because you have joined me. And in fact, what Elijah had prophesied now was happening. Verse 10 11. Know then that not a word the Lord had spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. He is a holy God. He is a holy God. As we see this fulfillment, if, if we had been reading straight through from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, we would have recalled something, though, that while we have been seeing God's very blunt justice, we would remember something else about God. And so I'm going to take you back to where this prophecy was first given in 1 Kings 21 to Elijah while Ahab and Jezebel were still on the thrones. The prophecy was, dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The statement is very clear. He is the most wicked king so far. Here's what follows. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly, humbly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. It makes my jaw drop to say, seriously? God's not going to bring his justice because he saw humility? What does that tell you about humility before God? If anybody deserved instant judgment, it would be Ahab and Jezebel who have just killed, murdered Naboth. And in just one brief moment of humility... God's heart is so moved that he delays it to the next generation. Yes, Ahab would die as well, but he wouldn't live to see all of this. What God notices and seeks for most is humility before him. Him. If there's a core sin God hates, it's pride. If there is a core spiritual virtue that gets God's attention, it's humility. Why is that? A couple of observations. Our humility lets God get more glory because our pride steals from his glory. It's like there's a certain amount of glory, not that it's really limited, but To the degree we live in pride, we are stealing glory from God. 
And that's important because there is nothing more important in the universe than the glory of God. Because glory, God's glory is the most important value. That's why humility is our most important virtue. If you would dare to do a spiritual checkup of yourself, that's the place to start. And ask yourself, not if you have pride, we all do. But ask yourself, how prevailing is your pride? How important is your image? How much are you obsessed with what people think of you? How important is it for you to insist that you are right and you are better? These are sobering things to realize that God's grace is amazingly generous when we are humbling ourselves before him. If there's anything he rewards, it seems to be humility. Hmm. Who's next on the hit list of God's holiness? Verse uh, 12. Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria. At Beth Echid of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, remember? Some relatives and asked them, who are you? They said, we are relatives, could be friends, cohorts, but we're on the side of Ahaziah. So they've come from where? From Judah. And we have come down to greet the families of the king, that's Joram, and of the queen mother, that's Jezebel, who they thought was still alive. So they hadn't been reading their news feed. They didn't know what at all has happened yet. Verse 14, take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the wall of Beth Echid. 42 men, he left no survivor. 42 more bodies. Verses 15 to 17 tells us that Jehu got another partner, uh, Jehonadab, who joins him in finishing off Ahab's family in Samaria, the capital. And then there is one more big finale, verses 18 to 28, and I'll again summarize and not go any, you can read the details on your own, maybe just not as bedtime stories. But the real enemies in Israel are the idolaters, because when you choose to worship that little idol of Baal, or the big idol of Baal, or go to the temple of Baal, you are participating in a cultic um, satanic practice. And so Jehu, anointed by God to destroy Baal worship, uh, pretends to host a huge sacrifice to Baal. He says, I'm going to worship Baal. I'm the new king. And he calls all the remaining prophets, priests, anybody who has been serving this purpose of Baal worship, calls them together to an indoor sacrifice. In fact, he stipulates, make sure that there are no servants or worshipers of Yahweh. This is just for, you know, us Baal worshipers. Gets them all gathered together, then orders his soldiers to go in and slaughter them. And they do. And they tear down the altar. And they tear down the temple of Baal that Ahab had built for his wife Jezebel. And they use the area as a public restroom. It's done. 
God is holy, and God had appointed Jehu to destroy them all. So one by one, scene by scene, God has accomplished in this wicked family the maintaining of his holiness. Just a little review of what has gone so far. Got the two kingdoms, kingdom of Judah, where David, godly David, and his line is continuing. On this side, you have Ahab, who married the, the foreign Baal worshiper, Jezebel. Ahab has 70 sons. Two notable sons and a son and daughter of Ahab and Jezebel are Joram, who was the king at the start of our reading today, and his sister Athaliah, and that's where the problem happened that bled over into uh, Judah is that their daughter, wicked Athaliah, we'll see more of her next week, marries that Joram, a different king Joram in Judah. They have this Ahaziah, the king that was killed early in chapter 9. He has sons. Jehu has anointed the first king. Ahab had already died. Joram and Ahaziah were first. Then this Jezebel, 70 sons, family and friends, and all who served Baal. And God was just and let us have a peek of it all. A couple, about two years ago now, we were studying Ecclesiastes. And I was thinking this week about that time when Solomon writes about entering the temple of God. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Basically saying, don't critique God. We don't get it sometimes. But we are in no place to critique him. We're... We're used to like the democracy thing where you can question authority. And so we've we got to really learn to make the switch as followers of Christ and say, he is king. And, and begin to understand absolute authority. Come to the New Testament, Hebrews. The writer says, therefore, we are, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he's describing heaven for believers. He's talking to believers. Let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire, quoting the Old Testament. So we are living in the privilege of grace. We are believers in Christ. We know we've got this eternal, wonderful, heavenly kingdom, right? So anything goes, right? No. God is still the consuming fire God. He's still the God of holiness and justice. So be thankful for the grace But worship him in reverence and in awe. We have to revere him. And what does that mean? Bottom line, it means obey him, whatever you know that he said. You see, these two verses in Hebrews are actually concluding a whole chapter which kind of lists areas in which we must obey God. Verse 10 had said, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Are we facing any discipline of sin? Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Have you ever realized that getting along with one another is part of holiness? Getting along. 
Conflict is about pride always, right? See to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When we hold on to those grudges, that bitterness, that failure to forgive, that's, that's a violation of the holiness of God. So this is like, you take, you take this whole holiness picture that we can see so easily with Ahab and Jezebel and their horrible idolatrous sins and say, isn't it? We're sinners yet too. And our God's still a consuming fire. And we're very grateful for heaven, but are we taking this seriously? And then finally see to it also that no one is sexually immoral. That anything sexual outside of heterosexual marriage is immoral, says our holy God, whom we have met and who created our sexuality. So, be holy as I am holy, Peter would write as well, God, uh, that God said. So, the last couple paragraphs as we continue on in this chapter are going to be sad for us to read because while Jehu was an instrument of God and zealous for God in this pursuit, he ends up with a spiritually mixed review. Verse 28, so Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. You've got to be kidding. He goes to all of this effort to eradicate the worship of Baal, and he does not deal with his own sin of worshiping the golden calves. How can this happen? First of all, we have to realize sin never makes sense. That's how deceptive the enemy is. I mean, we rationalize like crazy to defend something we want to do, something we want to have. Think, you all think backwards a little bit to those occasions. And the only way out of the crazy cycle of rationalizing our sin is to be so utterly devoted to this issue, the holiness of God, that we will seek with our whole heart to say and ask the question continually, is this what God wants me to do? Is this the attitude God wants me to have? Is this, is this the direction I should go? What, what would be the biblical principle? How, would, how could I find the will of God who is holy so that I do the right thing to the best of my ability? Jehu rationalized. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. That's an amazing reward for his pursuit of God's will. Yet Jehu, verse 31, was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. That's where the golden calf thing started. Jeroboam was the first of the king that that separated from the, the lower tribes. And when he established himself, a godless man, he knew that if his people would keep going down to Jerusalem and Judah, 
you're going you're to lose your, your loyalty. So he said, hey, it's too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. This is 1 Kings 12. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem to worship. Tell you what, I'm going to build you these golden calves. And so in Bethel and Dan, he built these golden calves, which conveniently were on the southern and northern borders of his territory. He says, why don't you worship them? And the idea that many believe he communicated was, you're not really worshiping the calves. You're supposed to picture God as invisibly riding the calves. So it's not really adultery. Is it? Second command, you shall make no graven image. And there was no separation in their mind. And so this confused... Well, how would they ever buy such a thing like that? The people of Israel who had been trained in the law of God. Well, it's because Joram, or rather uh, uh, Jeroboam, had installed and handpicked the priests, ignoring all the law about priest qualifications, says, I'll pick them. So he could say whatever he wanted to say. Be very careful the books you choose to read, the blogs you read, the podcasts you follow. Are they biblical? Because they could just be someone with their own little agenda that steers us wrong. So Jehu, like much of Israel, rationalized and did it anyhow, and yet God rewarded it, and yet God disciplined. The tension, right? Verse 32, here's the discipline. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Haziel overpowered the Israelites throughout their territories, and so bit by bit, he was chipping away at their territory to get now Jehu's attention. In your, in your outlines, if you just look at the bullet points at the bottom, just to kind of review what we've learned about God here today. God is holy. He is unique, fully righteous, and cannot tolerate sin. Have you settled in your heart that God's always right? Or has the world's definition of things like morality shifted your view? Because God hasn't changed his. Secondly, God is just and he must fully punish sin. As we read, God is still the same consuming fire. As fire cannot tolerate dried leaves, there will be no unjudged sin eventually. Thirdly, God's justice is partly revealed on earth. Glimpses like this, but fully in eternity. Hell is real. On one hand, we cringe at what we've read today, and this is just earth, judgment. But hell is real, and the Bible teaches about it clearly. If you want to do a personal study, Google what the Bible says about hell. Uh, I've got a study there if you're interested in looking at some of the passages. But it's a real place. It's the real destiny of those who reject Christ. And that brings the best news of all, and that is that God offers grace and eternal life to all who acknowledge their sin and trust in Jesus Christ who was punished for our sin. This understanding of the holiness of God is essential for us to understand salvation, eternal life based on grace because we are all sinners. And so the only way we could ever 
have eternal life in a perfectly holy place with a perfectly holy God is going to be if we are there by grace. Because sin will not be tolerated there. And the more we understand his holiness, the more we appreciate his amazing grace for those who believe or trust in Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand in these verses what it means to believe in Christ, just start with the idea of humility. Because humility is that core value by which we say, I cannot be good enough for heaven. No matter how well I think I've lived, how I've defended myself, I must drop all pride, pretext of pride in myself and say, I am utterly dependent upon God. Now you're ready to understand the grace of God. So John 3.16, God so loved the world of us sinners that he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, who God placed all of our sin on him and punished him. That whoever believes in him will not perish, hell, but have eternal life, heaven. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, though we deserve to be, right? But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because why? They have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Not because they are sinless or or because they're more sinful than the rest of us, but because they have not believed in the substitute who paid for their sin. Finally, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The word believe means to trust. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Your efforts to be a good person, doing good works, being baptized, or are you going to trust in Christ? He alone paid for your sin. And I just invite you to make that decision in your own heart. It takes the humility to say, I can do nothing to earn heaven. I must fully trust in Christ. He paid for my sin. And in the, in the darkness of understanding sin, And the awareness of God's amazing, blazing holiness, we will also see his amazing, gracious love for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are forced to grapple with your hatred of sin, your intolerance of all sin, and then the amazing privilege of an offer of grace forgiveness, free of charge when we understand we could do nothing to earn your favor. And so I thank you for that grace. May we bask in it. May we become more like you and your son in our hatred of sin, starting with our own. And may we find joy and peace in this uh, troubled world knowing, first of all, that you are at work in us to purify and grow us, and knowing we will spend eternity with you sometime, someday when we are at a place where there is no sin at all. In Jesus' name, amen.